How many of you have heard the term fake news? Well, you've heard it here if nowhere else, but how many do believe that there really is a lot of fake news yeah, going on out there? Well, it's interesting because it seems like, you know, secular society reflects Christian society and vice versa. Many times one is like a mirror image of the other, and so... Just like we have secular liberalism, there is some Christian liberalism, as we know. Um, and so, like I say, there's this mirror image almost of secular society. We have There's conservative people in the secular community that may not necessarily be believers, but they embrace what we would consider more conservative values. And so we have the more conservative element within the church. But even as there is what we now know more than ever, I think we really already knew it, but it has not been exposed in the past as completely as it has been exposed in these last, the last year or so maybe with this presidential election and so forth. And, and just, I think the internet, the many ways of communicating have really exposed the true uh, immensity of what we now call fake news. And uh, so we're finding out, though, that if you're willing to dig hard enough, you can get some good information, but uh, it's probably not going to come to you through the easiestly accessible venues and avenues. But my point is this. Even as there is fake news, this is not part of the message. This is... Your free bonus. It dawned on me yesterday, light bulb, that even as there's fake news in the secular world, now we call the gospel the good news, right? And that's real. The good news is real. Just like there's real news and fake news. Well, there is... The good news, but then there's fake news or fake preaching. And you might ask, well, what does that look like? Then again, you might not ask, what does that look like? But I'm going to tell you anyway. Here's some various elements that I see relating to fake news or fake preaching. Preaching that includes little or no scriptural content would be fake preaching. Anybody can preach about anything at any time, but true biblical preaching has to be focused on the Word of God. Would you agree? Now, is that true in every case, in every church? Are they really teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God? No, that would be fake preaching. But a lot of people like fake news, right? A lot of people believe fake news. So a lot of people like fake preaching preaching that takes scripture out of context it's called proof texting rather than you know exegetically hermeneutically you use these technical terms uh, examining the scriptures in their context fake preaching takes scriptures out of context and makes the meaning fit whatever particular point the preacher is trying to make. That would be fake preaching. Preaching that denies that the scriptures actually mean what they say. There's a lot of that going on today. Well, yeah, that's, that verse may uh, be condemning adultery or fornication or homosexuality. That's not really what it means. We have to, you know, and we have to interpret it in light of the changing social dynamics of the 21st century. You know all that, the verbal gymnastics that they use to try to explain to you why the scriptures don't really mean what they say? That's fake preaching. Preaching from a book or books other than the Bible. I know at one point, Rick Warren had a big promotion with several hundred pastors that he was uh, mentoring or 
whatever, however you want to call it. And they spent many, many weeks teaching out of his book, The Purpose Driven Church, or The Purpose Driven Life. I forget one of those two books they used. Fake preaching is preaching from a book other than the Bible. Sometimes I've seen preachers get up with a psychological book and preach out of that. You know, different. If you're preaching out of any other book but the Bible, that's fake preaching. Because a true preacher called by God preaches from the Word of God. Okay? This one might be a little touchy, a little sensitive. You may not agree with me on this, but I believe fake preaching is also preaching that focuses on self, self-help, self-esteem, self-image. Rather than focusing on brokenness, humility, repentance, confession, and submission to God. As human beings, it's kind of funny because we're such a small speck in this vast universe, right? And yet what's amazing, even though we are this small speck in a vast universe, God loved us so much He sent His only Son to die on the cross for us. But then many times human beings fall under this misconception that it's all about me. It's not all about us, it's all about Him. And so I believe fake preaching is preaching that's always focusing on you, a better you. You know, build up your self-image, your self-esteem. It's funny because that's not in the Bible. The Bible's just full of information about how we are vile, wretched, rotten sinners in need of a Savior. And the only thing that gives us our life any worth or value or meaning or purpose is the fact that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Let's see. Preaching that focuses on health and wealth here and now versus the insurpassable glories, wonders, and blessings of God's eternal kingdom. The temporal versus the eternal. Again, that's not really biblical. And we talked about this a while back in our studies in the book of Matthew, that Jesus, of course, used earthly analogies, parables, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning so that the people could understand what he was talking about. But ultimately, as you dig into the teachings of Christ, their ultimate meaning and purpose always relates to eternity because eternity lasts forever. This life, this world is temporary. And so fake preaching is focusing on the here and now uh, to the exclusion and detriment of eternity. That's our eternal destination, to live in the presence of God forever in His eternal kingdom. And in fact, this modern message, fake preaching of health, wealth, prosperity, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, you know, positive, celestine stuff. (laughs) That message would have never worked for the majority of Christians over the past 2,000 years. Do you get that? If you study the history of the church, the vast majority of Christians over the past 2,000 years have done nothing but suffer. It's a modern fake news. It's not the good news. It's fake news. And it sets people up for disappointment, heartbreak, and failure. I know this is a message in and of itself, but it just came to me, and I had to share it with you. Okay, last point. Fake preaching is preaching that focuses on what people want to hear, and that's what many churches are doing today, because they realize if you want to get more people in your church and have a bigger church, and thereby a more prosperous church, more resources, that's how it works. The more people you have, the more resources you have. But fake preaching focuses on what people want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And what do we all need to hear? The truth. Hello? What did Jesus say? Fake preaching will set you free. You shall know the fake news and it shall set you free. You shall know the truth. We need the truth. But people don't always want to hear the truth. In fact, most people, most of the time, in most places don't want to hear the truth. 2 Timothy 4.3 For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. By the way, this is the time we're living in. 
Do you realize we're living in a time of fulfilled prophecy? Now, not that this hasn't been the case down through church history, that different churches, different groups, and different places at different times have certainly rejected false doctrine. But the end times will be marked and are marked by a, a, a tremendous increase in the rejection of sound doctrine. The time will come when they will not endure or put up with sound doctrine. Which sound doctrine is biblical doctrine, the apostles' doctrine. Not the teachings of men, the teachings of God's word. The time will come when they, who is they? The church. It wouldn't be the world. They're not engaged in any way, shape, or form in Christian doctrine. Paul is talking about people in the so-called church. But according to their own desires, which I just touched on a moment ago, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. We're living in that time. And it's the time of fake preaching like never before. Second Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one, that would be the Antichrist, is, a, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So be on the lookout. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. You have a choice. You can believe the fake news or you can believe the truth. The truth is a little more difficult to handle. It's a little harder to swallow. It's much more humbling to look in the mirror and see the truth. And James talks about God's word like a mirror. But did anybody ever tell you that the right way was the easy way? Have you ever, anybody ever told you that? The problem is more and more people are saying, I don't really care what the right way is. I just want the easy way, right? That's the world we're living in. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. See, the, the truth, you know, you either love it or you hate it, Right? Oh, the truth, yeah, that's cool, that's okay, I guess. Yeah. No, 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 you either love it or you hate it. I love it. you love it? That they might be saved. By the way, if you want to be saved, guess what? You're going to have to learn to love the truth. Because that's the only thing that can save you. And by the way, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now here's some food for thought as we close out this little preamble to this morning's message. See, I would like to do this more, but since I only get most of you once a week, I have to put two messages in one. Okay. Food for thought. If there really is... Now, we all agree fake news is real, right? I mean, it's real fake. Fake news exists. Would you also agree that there is such a thing as fake preaching? Well, whether you agree with me or not, I'm pretty sure there really is fake preaching. And even the apostles talked about it in the New Testament, the false teachers. They existed then, they exist now, probably in much greater abundance now. If there really is such a thing as Good news, fake news, fake preaching. What kind of Christians might fake preaching create? Don't answer that. Think about it. I think the answer is obvious. 1 Peter chapter 2, let's go. 1 Peter 2 beginning in verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, 
But to those who were disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also, also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word today. We ask your blessing upon our studies today in this second chapter of First Peter. We ask that you'd open our hearts and minds. Help us to receive that which you have for us today. May we learn, may we grow, get to know you better, get to know ourselves better. Become stronger in our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this first verse here, verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. He's quoting, Peter is quoting from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, the Old Testament. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And then, hearkening back to last week, Peter really is reiterating here in verse 6 what he said in verse 5. You also as living stones, us, we talked about this, he's the big rock, the protruding cliff, And like Peter, we're pebbles, we're the little rocks, the living stones. We're being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he's tying these together. Us, as these living stones, making up this spiritual house. It's not the building, it's the people. But as the precious cornerstone, Jesus has been tested, he's been tried A tried stone, a precious cornerstone. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he has been tried and tested and proven to be the sure foundation of our faith. Without him, the church could not stand. A chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And again, Peter reiterates that which he stated in verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone. Living stone, I presume. Rejected indeed by men but chosen by God and precious. We covered all that last week. He who believes on Him will by no means be put to shame. Now we tend to, when we hear that word shame, usually we relate it to people. Thoughts of perhaps embarrassing situations from our past or things currently in our lives that we really hope nobody finds out about. Nobody likes to be put to shame shame but it's really before God Peter is talking about no one will be put to shame before God he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame and by the way God is the only one that really matters some people are afraid to really openly honestly proclaim their faith they kind of keep it under wraps we used to call them the clairol Christians. Only God knows for sure. It's the old Clairol, only your hairdresser knows for sure. The Clairol Christian. And we're afraid to be embarrassed, to be shamed, to be put down, to be persecuted and so forth. But Peter's talking about not being ashamed before God when we stand before Him and see Him face to face. He who believes on Him will by no means be put to shame. That doesn't mean you're not going to be mocked by people in the world, by your friends, your family, your neighbors. But better to be mocked by them than to be ashamed when you stand before God. Verse 7. Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. And so, again, Peter is kind of restating what he said in these previous verses, talking about Christ being rejected, but to God, He is precious, His one and only Son. 
And He is the cornerstone, the foundation of our faith. And to you who believe, He is precious. So, But Peter adds a qualifier here to that. Jesus is precious to God. But in terms of humanity, He's only precious to those who believe. Let me explain that. If you saw a diamond laying on the ground, but chose not to pick it up, which would be crazy, but who knows, right? You see it there? Hey, doesn't impress you. No, I'm not interested. It would have no value to you if you left it laying there, right? Now, is it truly valuable? Yes. But for you, it doesn't become valuable till you pick it up and do something with it. Then someone else comes along, they see it, and they go, whoa, man, that's a diamond, and they grab it. To them, it's precious because they take hold of it. To you who believe, He is precious. And so it's kind of heartbreaking for us when we see people who don't believe and they don't have that same attitude and viewpoint towards Jesus. They don't see Him as precious. They don't see Him as valuable. And to those of us who know Him and love Him, that that makes us sad. But now he goes on and he talks about how this impacts those who are disobedient. And again, when Peter talks about disobedience, he's talking about someone who refuses to acknowledge God, to acknowledge His Son Jesus Christ, to submit to their authority, to acknowledge that Jesus Christ paid the price for their sins. And the majority of humanity is in a state of disobedience towards God. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus remains the same, just like the diamond. If you don't pick it up, it's still a diamond. But to you, it's not precious. It does you no good because you haven't grabbed it. You haven't taken hold of it. You haven't embraced it. Jesus remains the same, but His impact on the rebellious, we could also call the disobedient the rebellious. Because to be disobedient towards God is to be rebellious. And the whole human race has been in rebellion against God since Adam and Eve blew it in the Garden of Eden. His impact on the rebellious is much different than His impact on the righteous. And by the way, when we speak of the righteous versus the disobedient, the rebellious, the unrighteous, we're not talking about, ooh, holier than thou. I'm better than you. No. The difference between the righteous and the unrighteous is the righteous have confessed their sins before God and they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And God has made us righteous by clothing us in His robes of righteousness. We have none of our own. So we're not talking about holier than thou. We're just talking about those who are rebellious and disobedient versus those who agree with God. God, you're right. I am a sinner and I do need salvation. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. It is faith in Him that makes us righteous. What makes Jesus precious to us as we have embraced Him and we receive the sacrifice that He has made for our sins. For those who are disobedient, rebellious, and reject Him, He's not precious. In reality, He is precious. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So again, the disobedient, that's the group that has rejected the stone, the rock, Jesus. The stone which the builders rejected And he's speaking here specifically of those uh, leaders in the house of Israel. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the ruling class of ancient Israel, the religious leaders, if you will, so-called spiritual leaders who rejected Christ. They were supposed to be the builders. But they rejected him. And yet, in spite of that fact, he's become the chief cornerstone. Just like the analogy of the diamond on the ground, the very stone rejected by those who refuse to believe has become the chief cornerstone for those who choose to build their lives on the rock. Matthew 7, 24. 
Therefore, Jesus says, whoever hears these sayings of mine, which we are hearing here today by reading from the scriptures, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. Oh, I read the Bible. That's great. You should. But do you do it? Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will make him like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, the rock. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so now he says, To those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, listen to this, being disobedient to the word. We just talked this morning about fake preaching. Peter says the disobedient stumble because they're disobedient to the word. The problem is, if you're not preaching and teaching the Word of God, then people don't know how to obey. We need to hear it. And we need to do it. They stumble being disobedient to the Word to which they also were appointed. Isaiah 8.14 He will be a sanctuary but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. See, if you build your life upon Jesus Christ and His Word, it becomes a sure and foundation And if you go on in that Matthew 7 passage where Jesus, we just read from, he talks about how the the storms come, the waves and the winds and all this tumult and chaos, but your house will stand firm because it's built on the rock. And that's a spiritual analogy, obviously. But if you remain part of the group identified here as the disobedient, then Peter says, you will stumble and you will fall. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-24 The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes down, verse 23, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews because they couldn't possibly imagine their Messiah, their Savior, being killed, being crucified. He's supposed to come as a conquering warrior. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You worship a guy that was crucified? Kind of weird, according to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so, again, if you embrace the message of the cross, then He becomes the rock upon which you build your life. If you reject it, then it it becomes a stumbling block because whether you believe it or not, it's true. And when you reject it, you wind up stumbling over it. You can't get past it because it is true. Matthew 21, 44. He who falls on this stone, and this is Jesus talking, will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And so he's saying either way. This is a Hebrew idiomatic phrase or statement saying the same thing two different ways. If you stumble on the message of Christ and the cross, you'll be broken And if it falls on you, you will be crushed. They stumble being disobedient to the word. This is the exact opposite of what we just read in Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will 
likened them to him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. On the one hand, embrace him, become obedient, build your life on Jesus and his word, and you are established firmly upon the solid rock and foundation of faith. Reject it, and you'll be crushed by it. You know what? It's no wonder that and when we talk about things underneath the surface, in the spiritual realm, that which we don't see with our physical eyes, one of the largest, biggest battles being waged, and it has been since the dawning of creation, but that battle is to keep people away from the truth of God's Word any which way Satan can do it. We have fake news, we have fake preaching, we have fake Bible translations. We have churches that don't, that employ fake preaching and don't put the truth out there. Because, and you know, there are many churches that say, well, you know, we just, doctrine is divisive. We don't want to be divisive. We're just going to focus on feeling good, Right? We're going to have, have worship, praise and worship that makes us feel good. And then some kind of an inspirational self-help, you know, power of positive thinking message that's going to make us feel good. Because all this doctrinal stuff is so divisive. You know what Paul wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians? There must be divisions among us to show who is approved of God. The Apostle Paul wrote that. Oh my goodness. My point is this, and it's sad because so many Bibles sit on the bookshelf and gather dust. So many people who are professing believers never really read their Bibles. By the way, you don't have to read your Bible to go to heaven. You go to heaven because you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You've been forgiven of your sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So you get saved and never read your Bible again. You won't be very strong or mature Christian. And I think you're probably walking a very dangerous line. But reading your Bible doesn't send you to heaven. Jesus and His shed blood on the cross sends you to heaven. But, as born again, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, hopefully Spirit-filled Christians, the Word of God is our most valuable resource. Do you know that? Just like in worldly terms, as much as we hate to admit it, the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money. In terms of this world, let's be honest. Our most valuable resource is money because you can accomplish things. You can run a political campaign, right? It takes money, unfortunately. And oftentimes, whoever has the most money wins except we've got another factor here and that's prayer but oftentimes in legal skirmishes and battles the guy with the most money who can hire the best lawyers usually wins but in the spiritual realm our most valuable resource is the word of God so it's not surprising that the devil You know, I don't like to talk about him too much, but he does exist. And he is out there pulling his shenanigans. Have you ever experienced that uh, you could be wide awake, alert, and you sit down to read your Bible, and you suddenly get drowsy? That's spiritual. Now, on the one hand, yeah, reading the Scriptures can be peaceful, you know, nourishing, relaxing, but there is a spiritual dynamic. You're, you know, I could go on and on about that. You know what I'm talking about. God's Word is our most valuable resource if we allow it to be. Psalms 19, I find myself going back to this scripture so much lately. I've loved this scripture for so many years. Psalms 19, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Do you know of any other book in the world that's perfect? The law of the Lord 
is perfect. Converting the soul. So many times we worry about, what am I going to say to help convince this person to become a believer, to win them to Christ? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't say the right thing? What if I don't say anything? You know what? Point them to the Word of God. We had that young group, Adams Road, the former Mormons that came and ministered here. Has it already been a year? I think it was last summer. And they shared their testimonies. And at least one of the guys I remember, he met with a Protestant pastor. And all that pastor did was to tell him to read, I think, it, you remember, the Gospel of John, I think it was. Anybody remember? What was it? As a, yeah, he said, read it as a child. Just put aside everything that you've ever heard or thought or known and read the Gospel of John as a child. And he got saved. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. God's Word is our most valuable resource, if we allow it to be. Now he's talking about those disobedient. To those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone. Peter says, to which they also were appointed. Or one translation reads, destined. You see, those who disobey God's message of salvation through Christ by confession and repentance of sins are destined to spend eternity separated from Him in a place that no one should want to go. I love this quote. I don't know who it came from, but I like it. God predestines every man to be saved. The devil predestines every man to be damned. Man has the casting or deciding vote. Let me read that again. God predestines every man to be saved. The devil predestines every man to be damned. Man has the casting or deciding vote. Oswald Chambers, the destiny of every human being depends on his relationship to Jesus Christ. It is not on his relationship to life or in his, on his service or his usefulness, but simply and solely on his relationship to Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But you. So we talked about the disobedient, but Peter's turning back now to the believer. He says, you, you who believe, you who are obedient, you living stones, are a chosen generation or people, a chosen people. And by the way, folks, we should never take for granted being his chosen ones. I think sometimes we do. Do you realize how special that is, how amazing that is, that you can call yourself one of God's chosen ones. A chosen generation, a chosen people. And notice again, as we spoke about last week, the corporate dynamic here, he's speaking to them as a whole. A chosen generation, a chosen people, plural. We're not in this alone, we're in it together. Our corporate status before the Lord. Now, under the Old Covenant... The Old Testament, God dealt almost exclusively with His people corporately, as a group. There were people here and there singled out. The Holy Spirit came upon certain ones. But now every believer has the Holy Spirit living inside. 
And that's what draws us together corporately as the body of Christ. So we have the personal, intimate relationship with God. We are also connected corporately by the fact that the Spirit of God dwells within each one of us. So you're not just a chosen person. You're part of His chosen people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Now God promised Moses that His covenant people, Israel, would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. That promise is fulfilled in the New Testament by the church. The church possesses blessings similar to those Israel had, though it has not become the new Israel. Some have brought out that teaching. That's more fake teaching, fake preaching. That Israel has been replaced. Replacement theology, no. Israel will always be Israel. The Jews will always be God's chosen people. But you and I have now been grafted in, and we too are God's chosen people. But we are not the new Israel. We are part of the new covenant, a royal priesthood, Peter says, notice too, it's the nuances of just a word here and there. You are. Not you will be. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. In Christ, God already sees us as priests and kings. Is that what you see when you look in the mirror? That's why you've got to use your spiritual eyes. Paul said, we fix our eyes on that which is not seen the unseen things of God's eternal kingdom. God already sees you as a priest and a king. But now if we could be mindful of that on a regular basis, it would certainly have an impact on how we live, would it not? The choices we make, the decisions we make, the behavior that we exhibit. Oh, wait a minute. I'm a priest and a king. I shouldn't be acting like that. I need more of that in my life. What about you? Notice. A royal priesthood. Every believer is in the ministry. And every believer is to behave like a member of the royal family. Now, I don't mean in snooty way. But you expect members of the royal family, royalty, to have a certain decor, a certain presentation. You know, be classy. Class rather than crass. Royal priesthood, holy nation, class act. The holy nation no longer is God's holy nation geographical. Yes, Israel has been restored. Yes, Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem when he returns. But God has expounded the boundaries of his holy nation exponentially because now it's a spiritual nation made up of all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and His Father, Jehovah God. We're part of that holy nation which covers the entire planet. There are true believers all over the world and we're all part of that holy nation. Now when Christ returns, the whole world will be a holy nation under Christ. His own special people. I like that. Chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. And by the way, that's another reminder, folks. We talk about getting things backwards. It's not about us. It's about him. His own people. We don't own God. Some people act like they do. He's there to do their beck and call. He owns us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, you have been bought with a price. Property of Jesus, Bob Dylan. His own special people. Now a lot of people do think they're special. And some are. (laughs) Isn't that special? But only God can make us special because He made us in the first place. Sin made us very unspecial. But now through Jesus Christ we have become His own special people. I love that. Who wouldn't want to be one of God's special people? I don't get it. I certainly do. How about you? 
And I'm thankful that I am called one of God's own special people because I have put my faith, hope, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of my soul. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you. There again, it's about Him. God's special, as God's special people, our purpose here on planet Earth is to praise Him, to worship Him, to honor Him, to bring Him honor and glory before our fellow human beings. If we're not going to do that, there's honestly no reason for us to stick around. I'm not suggesting that you off yourself. I'm just saying, as a believer, if you're not honoring God, bringing praise and glory to Him, if, again, if, if your life is all about you and you're all self-focused, navel-gazing, as they call it, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> then you might as well go to heaven because that's what you're supposed to be doing. That's why we're here. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's an interesting thought. Every human being is basically born blind. Spiritually blind. And when someone is born blind, they have no frame of reference, no concept of light. All they know is darkness. But He called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. I love the lyrics from the old Hank Williams song, I Saw the Light. Here's the second verse. Just like a blind man, I wandered along. Worries and fears I claimed for my own. Then, like the blind man that God gave back his sight, praise the Lord, I saw the light. Amen? Verse 10. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Who once were not a people. Now the Jews, Peter's writing here to, primarily to Gentiles. The Jews were and are God's chosen people, but the Gentiles to whom Peter is writing were viewed as uncouth, pagan, barbarians, which was justifiable by the fact that, by and large, the only people on planet Earth in ancient civilization that were worshiping the true God were the Jews. And so he's saying, who once were not a people... Now, for many of us, our ethnic heritage, our family tree, tends to be a source of pride. I'm a proud Irish American, I am. Or whatever it might be, Italian American, you know, you know what I'm saying? Everybody kind of takes some pride in their ethnicity for the most part. But God says we were not a people till we became His people. The humanistic New Age philosophy of the brotherhood of man is a farce without Jesus Christ. The human race is lost in sin and thereby, according to the scriptures, children of the devil. Jesus called the Pharisees that. They, he referred to their father, the devil. You were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Now because of and through Jesus Christ. In fact, belief and faith in Jesus Christ is now the prerequisite for anyone wishing to claim the title people of God, person of God. Faith in Christ, that's the prerequisite. Some people embrace this universal brotherhood of man. You know, we're all children of God. No, it's not true. You're not a child of God until you're born again by the Spirit of God, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And now you have become a part of His people who had not obtained mercy. So you were not a people. You had not obtained mercy. Mercy is what? Not getting what we deserve. Two sides of the same coin. One side of this coin is grace. God's unmerited favor. Getting what we don't deserve. Salvation, forgiveness, eternal life. We don't deserve those things because we are sinners. Mercy is the other side of that coin. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And what we do deserve is eternal punishment. Because we fall short of God's glory. We're imperfect. We are sinners. Having not obtained mercy, outside and apart from a saving faith in God, 
and His Son, Jesus Christ, there is not and cannot be any mercy for any human being because God is perfect in all of His ways. He cannot allow imperfection in His presence. Therefore, if you've not been washed in the blood of the Lamb, forgiven for your sins through the blood of Christ, clothed in His robes of righteousness, there is no way for you to obtain mercy and God is totally righteous and totally justified in His position. Not getting what we deserve is going to heaven. Getting what we deserve means spending eternity separated from God in a place of ceaseless torment. But now we have obtained mercy once... Okay, so let's go back over this, what we've looked at. The living stones. Once you were a blockhead. Now you're a living stone. Once you were disobedient. But now you have built your life upon the solid rock of Christ and His Word. Once you were not one of God's people, now you are. You're one of His special chosen people. Once you were destined for eternal punishment, no mercy. Now you're destined for eternal paradise, having received both grace and mercy. And you know what? As we, if we had the time, there's, we could go on and on about the list of once were's versus now ours. You once were this, now you're this. Once were, there's so much that God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through His Holy Word. So, you know, J. Vernon McGee used to say there's really only two kinds of people, the saints and the ain'ts. I got another twist on that. The once were's and the now are's. And some still are what they were. And some are now what they weren't. So I got two questions for you, two big questions as we close. Which group are you a part of? And which group do you want to be a part of? Seems like a no-brainer to me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time in your word today. We thank you for the power of your word to change hearts, to transform lives, transform minds by the renewing transformed by the renewing of our minds through your word and the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, I want to pray for anyone here today who maybe has not made the transition from once were to now are. Lord, if there's any even one person here today desiring to make that transition, to make that change, to move from darkness to light, from death to life, that you would draw that person or those persons by your Holy Spirit, that they would come up and pray with one of our prayer team members and turn their life over to you, Lord, over to Jesus Christ, the Savior of their soul, that they would confess their sins and repent and become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And Lord, beyond that, you know every heart here. You know those who maybe have stumbled, have drifted away, that you would bring them back, bring in the lost sheep, back into the fold. Lord, maybe someone today is just discouraged, downhearted, confused. Lord, we know no matter what the question is, you have the answer. Maybe someone's struggling with a health issue, whatever it might be, we ask you to to reach out and touch each one by your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Spirit upon this congregation in these closing moments. And help us to be responsive to the moving of your Spirit in our midst. And help us to go forth today with the truths that you've given us And apply them, Lord, that we might be like the wise man who hears your words and does them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.